Training, mindset, integrity, incremental improvement. What can you do better today? Start right here with the Pendola Project. Hey now, welcome back everyone. This is another episode of the Pandola Project and you can hear that I'm laughing mainly at myself. I had some difficulties with this technology that I don't understand and Ryan was just being very supportive the whole time I was trying to figure out how to get this podcast going, weren't you Ryan? Yes, this is this is going to be a, an amazing two and a half hour podcast. You guys will only hear an hour of it, but it was it's it's been very good. <laughs> so hey guys, uh, welcome back to another episode of the Pandola Project. As always, I get to be your host, and I'm Matt Pandola. And as you can already hear, Ryan is back in the house. He's been heavily requested. We had a lot of feedback from just the type of cues that Ryan has been giving, the type of examples and stories he tells, so that we can better understand how we can utilize these suggestions and these progressions. So I know, Ryan, we already talked before before I figured out I wasn't recording, how we are going to talk about foot fetishes and why. So you have a foot fetish, right? Yes. And you requested that we talk about this subject, which I love because whether you realize it or not, you probably need to give your feet a little bit of love. And so this is something that is always coming up in training for different athletes that we work with. And I think that we don't really think about our foot strength or our foot mobility stability factors as much and understanding why we should be, I think is an important objective here, right? So let's talk about that objective, right? As coaches, it's our job to give the objective. So coach Ryan, what uh, would you say is the important factor why we need to be aware and cognizant of our foot or our feet in training? And, and why do you think we need to do that? Okay. Uh, first, just so you know, if you really want to look into the mechanics and the strength of feet and really understand that, don't type in foot fetish into the Google browser. <laughs> won't come up with what you want. Uh, I will share a brief story of myself. Uh, when I was in my mid-20s, I had taken up volleyball as a aspiring desire to improve i was not very good and i enjoyed playing outdoor and just with the group i had been tied into in the winter you played indoor and in the summer you went and played outdoor and from years of playing soccer i had crap ankles i had sprained my ankles multiple times i just didn't feel strong so I had defaulted myself, especially playing indoor, to lace-up braces and socks and ankle-supported shoes, and I would continually, at least once a season, roll my ankle doing something. And in particular, when I would go outside and I'd put on a high-traction shoe and I'd have my braces laced up and I'd be playing outside, and it was just a nonstop ankle fest which was super frustrating because that puts you out on even a minor ankles going to put you out stubborn athlete two weeks and a smart athlete at least six, right? So at one point I had looked into a couple things. And again, in my, this is probably now getting into my early thirties and I still probably wasn't all that great at what I did, but I started to realize that I was just, I was either going to play by 
improving something or I was going to stop because it just, it was, it wasn't worth it. So I got to the point where I was like, you know what? I'm just not going to wear anything. I'm taking my shoes off. I'm taking my socks off. I'm going to get out here with all these people that are playing barefoot and I'm just going to trust it. And as I started to play more consistently without any shoes, obviously outdoor, I played with shoes indoor. I started to get this sensation of the ground and I started to, to where it just became innate more than I was thinking about grabbing the ground or thinking about feeling it. It was just kind of like when I touched the ground, the ground was there. And when you're in that shoe and that brace, you're kind of on the ground, but you're not in touch with the ground. This starts to get a little bit, you know, hippie woo woo, but being able to have that sensation eventually became much more conducive to me being strong. Now, if you were to look at my feet and the way that my feet are, especially my left, I break down. My arch is my my arch on my left is very broken down. My right is okay. But even in that poor position state, I had a more functional stability than I did in a real stable shoe. And I, at this point, I had also gotten into some of my continuing ed that looked at that holistic side of total body functioning movement. And it started to make a little bit more sense as to the fact that the foot plays a much larger role in what the body does than what we perceive. And at the same time, I had read Born to Run, which I'm sure that you have read and um, I assume are a fan of at least some basic principles. Oh man. I mean, born to run came out and everyone was running barefoot. Yeah. Right? Well then, yeah. Then Vibrant got screwed and said, Hey, we're going to do this. And then they <laughs> lost a shit ton of money in, a, in it. But the, the general gist was, was the right idea, right? It was like, okay, Hey, guess what? You don't need to run on a pillow to be able to move functionally. And you don't have to have this big cushioned up shoe to train. And even then, I mean, I remember, I remember being in the, in a box gym, you know, in my twenties. And so this was, you know, probably later, uh, early two thousands, right. People are, you're on, you're on leg presses and squat racks and running shoes. And people are in these big, cushy, fancy shoes because it was just popular. And at the time you're like, yeah. But if you look back in the eighties and you look at some of these bodybuilders back in the eighties and they're squatting in you know, big work boots. Like what what, you thought it was a look, but in reality it was this concept of being planted onto this hard flat surface. And then the foot was allowed to do what the foot was supposed to do instead of trusting some other thing on your foot to help, which usually ended up hurting you. So that was the start of it. And I have certainly gone in waves as to how much I address it with depending on the clientele. But I do really believe how important the foot mechanics are as they move through the rest of the chain. Yeah, no, it's well said. And I think for a lot of people, it just comes down to some of the basics. Like, how are you managing your stability, right? What what are you doing when I say I want you to rip the ground apart, for example, and you're standing there in a squat position and getting that feeling of being able to create torque, I think is difficult for a lot of people in the beginning. And I ask that question mainly to you, Ryan, is how do you coach a position like that where we're trying to get the arches turned on, for example? Now, I have my ideas on this and and progressions, but I'm curious as to what you do from the start there. 
So from a simplicity standpoint, we actually just went over this last week in our education hour at the facility, but I have a handful of power lifters that I work with. And then I have some general pop that I train and a couple of baseball players. And I look at the position of the feet in, in a shoe. I first, I just see what happens because you can see a lot, even without seeing the toes, right? You can see what the ankle wants to do. You can see how that ends up attributing to what the knee does or what happens at the hip and that asymmetry, that one-sided nature might gravitate and push to one direction. So I start with a couple different things and it really depends on what the person is able to process. So one is this concept of the tripod foot, right? I want you to feel the ground with three points the ball of the big toe, the ball of the little toe, and the heel. Grab, find that first. Now, I can have an incredibly rolled in, I'll say pronated, but I know in talking to a couple of people that, that have listened to this in the past, they're like, hey, sometimes it gets a little bit wordy above me. So I, every once in a while, I'll probably try to check in and, and just give a generalization of what it is in, in uh, people terms. But that idea where the ankle collapses down and everything really pressurizes towards the middle. I can still find those three points pretty easily. I can collapse that foot. I can put my ball on my big toe, my little toe, and my heel on the ground, and I can create that tripod sensation. Doesn't mean my foot's in a good position for what I'm trying to accomplish. But I find that that's a start. If I can get people to have the sensation of they're at least aware of the foot. Then you get into kind of that Kelly Starrett original cueing from the original um, Supple Leopard days where he was like, screw your feet into the ground. And what I had always seen with this is this mindset of like of the torque you're talking about, right? Where you push your feet into the ground and you kind of twist them out to create this better, stronger foot arch. And the discussion I had had is when I actually try to work on that, I feel like that pushes me off of my big toe. If I gra- if I put my feet on the ground and I try to torque my feet and knees out, I feel it wants to roll me into the outside of my foot. So what I actually think about is screwing into the ground from like going towards the middle. And this, I think you would probably use as a, a as a short foot cue right? Where you're trying to, where you're on the ground, then you're going to imagine winding your feet in where the big toe gets closer to the heel. And I find that if I can just do those two things, if I can get someone to go, here's the three points of contact, and I want you to screw your feet inward and try to pull that big toe closer to the heel, that by itself at least gives the perception of an active arch, Then you can talk how much grab I have on the floor or how much splay of the toes. But for my sake and most of the people that I have in a fixed position, like a squat or a deadlift, those two cues are kind of the primary that I will use. Yeah, no, I like that. And just for people listening that can get a little bit lost in this translation, we are starting a new thing with the podcast where we'll have some links to these foot fetish drills that we like to do. And some of the things that we're talking about today, those links will show you a real-life example. So it'll send you to our YouTube page where we have these links up. But the 
the the arch and getting that feeling that you're talking about is a, a lot of times uh, to me it's something that's hard to be able to understand like you said the short foot being able to really draw in that position for your arch can be it can be difficult. So sometimes I use uh, some examples like I was telling you with a quarter Well, I'll put a quarter uh, under the first meta, so under the big toe joint. And just while they're doing some of these drills, see if they've actually buried their foot down enough so that that quarter actually sticks to that first meta. And I do the same thing with a dime on the fifth uh, meta, which is under the pinky joint. So Drills like that, you can you can see and observe. I think it'll help you to understand a little bit more about what we're talking about. But <clears throat> another one I really like is when you're just standing there and we have a band that goes around your hip, but the anchor is lateral. So in other words, to the side of you, it's anchored to the side of you. And you have that band wrapped around your hip. And then from there, we internally rotate. So we get that resistance from the band and we're rotating against that resistance. And as we do that, our arches really turn on and they feel that arch come on. At least in my experience, that's helped a lot with a drill like that. And, um, you know, then just doing some very simple drills where we'll do some great toe walks, we'll do some heel walks, we'll do some rigid walks. And when I say something like rigid walks, I'm talking about where you're pressing your little toes down more into the ground and actually trying to keep your big toe off the ground while, while we walk in the uh, frontal plane. So laterally, things like that, I think help a lot. So again, these, these drills will be linked because I know that it's hard to imagine some of these things. So hopefully that'll help you guys out a little bit more, but you were talking a lot about, this is more of the intrinsic parts. But of course, when we talk about the leg, the leg has a lot more to do with our foot function. And the reason why I say that, because I think that people spend a lot of time on these drills that just focus on muscles that just attach at the foot into to these muscles um, where I think we have to involve the leg as soon as we start getting this feeling that you're talking about. So then I like to start to get them into some loaded positions. And when I say loaded, that could be using your hands on the wall. So hand supported. And when I say loading, you could be doing some wall marches or some leg swings. So you're doing now a single leg swing and let's say you're doing a transverse swing. And again, we can throw that video in to this mix too. When you're doing that transverse swing, we're making sure that our grounded foot isn't spinning around and we're keeping that hip shining forward, right? If your hip is your headlight and you're keeping that hip shining forward as you're creating chaos and crossing transitioning planes, multi-planner with the other leg. So these type of drills, I think, can really help to start to get some loading done where the athlete can start to feel and understand and strengthen their positions. And then of course, progressing from there where you don't have hand support anymore and you're starting to do something like an overhead walk in, um, in these positions, right? So, um, one of my favorite things to progress to is what I call a uh, sprinting walk, which is basically because you're up on your toes more and then 
we're working on pulling our um, toes up as we're walking. And as we start to work on that pull, in other words, that, um, that extension, then of course, the, the more, the better we're getting in that, um, that dorsiflexion, the better off we are to push back down into the ground. We're increasing that range. So some of these areas here, I think, can get a little bit wordy, right? We talk about uh, some of the plantar muscles here that contribute to that. But essentially, what I think you guys need to know is that we should all be pronating to a degree. It's just that most of the time we're looking at overpronation or sometimes we're looking at underpronation. So what we try to see is, are the little toes, for example, are they able to splay out? Right. And that's just a simple little hack that I like to use. Um, and I'll give them credit for this, even though um, they're not like a sponsor or something, guys. But I use correct toes a lot. And I know, Ryan, you were asking me a little bit about correct toes, but I actually suggest that people sleep with correct toes because, you know, it's keeping their feet, their toes splayed out all night, but without loading. And I think that's always a great start um, because I, at least in my testing, I do a toe yoga test. And, and in testing, we see that they're actually a lot of times not able to move their big toe independently from their little toes and vice versa, but also that splaying out because their toes have been imprisoned, imprisoned for so long in these, uh, these sexy shoes, right? We don't, we don't have, they don't have the big wide uh, toe bed, for example, and that I think over time does contribute to some of these issues that we have. So that is where I like to start. And then, hey, let's start to walk around the house barefoot a little bit. Um, certainly, let's start to do some drills barefoot in uh, in the strength training side of things. Um, but the thing I caution on is be careful about how much power um, that you're doing in, let's say, bare feet or you know, uh, any of these type of, uh, shoes, Vibram shoes that you mentioned before, they got into a lot of trouble. A lot of injuries happen. Um, because I don't, you won't see me out there running 10 miles in, uh, in toe shoes. Right. Um, that's, and especially if I'm going anything, let's say more than a stride, then I'm, and I'm not going barefoot. So, you know, that's some stuff that we build into though. So even some barefoot strides, which I think are great. I think we have to build into that. If you have not taken these other steps yet, um, any thoughts on, on this, Ryan? Yeah. So kind of backtrack to the beginning of that we talked about how important like the foot is the foot and that's great and this concept but if we look at anything from athleticism to activities of daily life you can't just think about the foot right you have to think about the knee you have to think about the hip you have to think about the torso all of it ties together but if we think about where the foot is the foot is our ground reaction force it's where it's the first thing to come well it's the only thing really to contact the ground so when we put pressure to the floor, that energy has to radiate up the body. It has to allow other things to contribute to what allows us to be balanced or to squat or to run or whatever it is. And you can certainly have some debates between these ideas of anatomy trains, these fascial slings that connect the body, right? And for people who don't know, there's a well, this kind of started in the rolfing world, which is uh, for people that have ever experienced that. It's kind of a deep tissue. They call it structural integration massage. But Thomas Myers came out 
and wrote a book called Anatomy Trains. And he had done some cadaver work looking at how if you pull on one section of the body, where does this fascial, this fascial is the connective tissue that sits on top of the muscle, kind of creates a, a structure of the body. If you, but a big part of it is that it, it is a force transducer. So if you create force at one end, it will transduce force further up. So we used to believe that muscle by itself was the calf did the calf's job, the biceps did the biceps job, the quads did the quads job. But now there is at least one side of the coin that's saying yes, but this is how they connect. This is how the big toe might affect the pelvic floor. And I know from we've talked about, which obviously is going to be past the scope of trying to add into this, we've also talked about the importance of transverse abdominis and the deep stabilization system of the abdominal wall. And one of the trains, if you will, from that Thomas Myers talks about is the deep uh the deep frontal line and that line connects from basically the musculature of the foot up your posterior tib which kind of generates the arch of the foot up through the adductors so the groin muscles into the psoas pelvic floor transverse abdominis up through the diaphragm and all of those pieces whether you're thinking about general gait and daily life or someone trying to pull a 900 pound deadlift all of those things have to work synergistically and i think that you'll find if you get into that foot position that we're talking about and you try to create that short foot or you grab the floor and you're just standing there other stuff will feel like it comes on so if i just let my feet collapse i have a certain sensation if i start to activate through the floor i might have more sensation than just the foot and lower leg and that connection becomes important because otherwise we can cheat the system. And you've seen plenty of athletes that do that, right? They go, they've got these flat splayed out ankles that are externally rotated below the knee. And they still manage to have a 30 inch, 36 inch vertical jump. And they can create very athletic movement. Is that putting a toll on the body? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe that's just, they've, conditioned themselves to move into those positions would they have been a better athlete could they have had a 38 inch vert could they have moved more athletically if they had ever been taught how to use that lower part of their leg maybe but i think that it is beneficial because i look at longevity of an athlete or a client and if someone comes to me it's like i want to be faster my first thought is great how do you move in general because i could potentially get you fast for one season and then you're hurt for two more. So what are all these little intrinsic things that we talk about have a lot more to do with creating this resilience and robustness of the body. And the foot itself is so important in being able to just function 20 years down the line, because how many people do you know that are in their forties and fifties? They're like, I, every, I think, 75% of my male clientele over 50 has this innate fear of tearing an Achilles. Like, oh, when you get older, you tear your Achilles. As a man, you tear your Achilles. You, you don't have to. <laughs> right. You, know, you, you don't. It's just it, it is what it is. So I'm obviously running a little bit off of the original topic that we talked about. But the importance of how that motion radiates up and creates 
added stability in what you're talking about is this chaotic plane, right? Leg swings that eventually gravitate to a running stride that eventually gravitate to sprinting or taking, you know, an elite level competitive skier, right? Or a, or a trick skier and, and someone that's doing these aerial rotations, they land a little off kilter and they're able to adjust. That all starts from the point of contact. And I think it's interesting because I would actually like to ask you this question as someone that specializes in running. You talked about everybody should have a little bit of pronation. And at least from my understanding, in your general striking, in let's say just walking, you kind of start on that outside aspect of the heel and it just rolls a little bit diagonally across and then it finishes as like a toe off from the big toe. Uh, what is the importance, do you think, of having that that uh, arch position, that quality strength in the arch throughout that motion and how much of it is allowing that tissue to distort and go from a strong arch foot heel strike to a maybe flattening rolling in motion and push off and how much of that affects a runner let's say yeah no that's a that's a great question because i don't want people to feel like well if i have flat arches that i'm just not going to be any good at running or or any other sport for that matter we've seen outliers from all of these things so definitely can still be world-class, but it's just more about, we were discussing the windless mechanism, which is an old sailor's term. And with that means that windless without wind, you're still able to sail, right? So that windless mechanism is referred to, especially with your big toe, when you're pushing down into the ground and being able at the same time to lean forward through your ankle not through your hip, but your ankle. So the reason why that's important is because all of that contributes to your main anti-gravity muscle for performance, which is your glutes. So, you know, essentially people say um, it, the glutes have become like the hot topic in, in running, right? I, I remember years ago when I felt like nobody was talking about the, the butt when it came to running, right? But in fact, I heard a lot of talk about how lift your knees when you run, right? Which, uh, which I, I feel like is, is not a great cue at all. We use way too much of our hip flexors normally um, in, in these kind of transitions when I'm talking about your, your gait and your swing leg, right? And this transition is what I'm talking about. We want to think about essentially leaning forward and pushing down more and really just letting the glutes do their job. So the more force I can create there, the easier my leg swings and pops through, okay? And so essentially that means that it's free energy, right? And it's much easier to create that, that force and get that energy return. So windless mechanism, it's roughly 50% of your energy is free, all right. And then about 50% is used from, you know, your, your body, your, your, uh, muscle skeletal system and cardiovascular system, all of that. So essentially we see that many, many people, if not all, but the very elite of the elites are not anywhere near close to 50% of using that free energy. So this is where something as picky as getting the proper mobility through the big toe and being able to really get uh, not only your big toe, but all your toes into flexion to create that, 
that's where, you know, again, we do some very specific drills for the toes. Now, some people might think, well, that's, that's, I don't have time for that. I'm not going to go into the gym and do those independent drills. And you know what? You might be right. It might not be worth it for you. Um, and especially if you're not, say, trying to, to, to get on a podium somewhere. But that being said, there's a lot of people out there doing 10Ks to marathons and training pretty hard for them. And I'll tell you an example for myself, because I believe in practice what I preach, not just like, okay, this, this um, is what the book says, right? So I took myself through a six-week program um, that, you know, I ended up using with my athletes over time. We saw that it made a, enough difference that it mattered to do this protocol for the foot mechanisms we're talking about here and at running at the same heart rate. And I, uh, it was 135 was the heart rate I ran at. So at what we would call maximum aerobic pace. Okay. And, or really functional pace there. So I did that on the same course and I ended up taking off about a minute and 36 seconds off of that course over a six week period of time. Now, that may not seem like a lot, but I can uh, tell you that was enough to get me to the top of the podium for North Face that year. So that it it made the huge difference in uh, either placing fourth, like I did the time before, or first. Okay, so to me that made all the difference. That that meant a lot to me to do it. So there was my why. But what I will say is I found that certainly I could see running at the same exact heart rate. I was not working harder. I was working the same and at the same exact course, the same exact pace, and I ran quite a bit faster. That ended up being uh, working out to be about 12% faster, which is significant considering that my fitness was pretty high to begin with. Now, the final thing I'll say here is I think... If you don't want to work on those things as much, go out for a hike. Start to vary the terrain a little bit. Have some thick grass that you're walking on. Have some dirt. um, And start to get into some more of the technical trails. Now, I'm not saying to do it overnight. You know, make it work for you. But over time, I think that going out and finding places where it's rooty and rocky and the feet are always having to manage different positions, that in itself is going to start to really build up a lot of these things that we're talking about. So if you just make that a training day and you say, hey, I don't want to every day I'm coming in, I'm not going to work on my halicus tendon. I'm not going to work on the short foot, right? I'm not going to, that's fine. Um, I think that you can get a lot of results this way. And so when, um, when you go through, uh, say six weeks, give yourself six weeks, I bet you, you will start to find that your proprioception, things like this start to feel a lot better, but also you should see some sort of a marker. I like to always use a marker. So for example, you could use a course that you're comfortable with, but challenges you some somewhat for, again, for the level you're at and do that course. Maybe it takes you 15 minutes to hike it. I'm talking hiking here. And then put yourself through that for six weeks and then retest yourself, time yourself. And, you know, odds are you're going to find that you might be a minute or two or more faster and all just because you've done some work to strengthening, uh, strengthen these foot positions, but without having to do like, you know, hundreds of hundreds of boring reps and things like that. Right. So what's your thoughts on that, Ryan? Yeah, no, I like that. A big, if you, if you look into any of these, 
foot gurus, if you will, a lot of the general consensus starts with this concept of sensation and proprioception. And the argument becomes these soft, cushy, comfortable shoes have kind of turned the the foot musculature off. And I think that's a big generalization, right? Obviously, the feet have to work. But a lot of people will just say, go take your shoes off and go outside, right? Find, go to a park, go to find, you know, if you have landscape in the back of your yard and you've got maybe some river rock that you've got, go stand in it, go walk in that and have that feeling of what happens when you actually know what's underneath you. Because the rest of the time, and, and even if we're talking about hiking, you're making those micro adjustments when you hit a little rut or a little bit of off angle or you or you touch a rock then imagine just walking around outside without the shoe portion and then you've got to make the adjustment not just from the ankle and the knee but now you're also making it directly from that sensation of the foot i think that was probably without really knowing it was the experience that i had when i started just saying screw it. I'm taking my shoes off. I'm already rolling my ankle. Who cares? And all of a sudden there is just now this, you come down from a jump and the ground's there and you feel it and you make that adjustment from there. And it's not to say that you are bulletproof. It's just giving you a different sensation. And you're right. All of these little baby drills are probably the one to 5%. Everything's working really well. I'm super elite. I'm moving really well. There's just, I'm missing that next step. Yeah, then I might need to do some direct work where I'm just trying to see how strong I am through my big toe. But for most people, and I'm going to get a lot of people in trouble at some of the big box gyms at this point, but if you're working out, take your shoes off. If you're in a squat, get out of your running shoe that you just went on the treadmill warmed up on and just stand on the ground and feel the sensation of what it's like to unrack a bar on your back with your feet in contact with the ground and squat down and stand up. I've never had anyone that took their shoes off and went, Oh, I felt so much weaker doing that. Like it just, it just wasn't the case. And yes, you probably can't do that at a lot of places. And, but you could just tell them that your feet don't have COVID. And as long as you're wearing your mask, you're okay. But the overall rule is start with sensation, start with that proprioception, which is just your ability for your brain to acknowledge balance and once you can feel something, you may not want to go back. I bounced the hiking shoes that I have now. I bought from a company called Vivo Barefoot. And it's a minimal sole. And 90% of people that would look at me think I'm absolutely crazy. Because like, you're going to step on rocks and, and sticks and everything. And I'm like, yeah, I know. And if I'm in a big luggy boot with a big dense sole, that thing might be great. But I am more likely to injure myself wearing that than knowing what's underneath me. It's not like I'm wearing plastic. I'm not going to puncture through this thing. It's still a nice, solid, rubber, dynamic. In fact, I think it's even a Vibram sole. It's soft. It's it's pliable, which means I know where I am in space. When I step down on something and I feel a rock that might turn my ankle, my foot's going to absorb into that rock. It's going to sense it. It's going to make that transition. And it has a nice big toe box and I can splay my toes out. And I like that sensation. People may not, and they may not need it. 
they might be great in a trail shoe or in a hiking boot and still have the ability to sense that change of position and that uneven surface underneath them. I've just now acclimated myself so far that I don't want anything like that. I, unless I eventually get back into running, which probably is a terrible idea, (laughs) but I like the sensation. I like to be able to feel things under my feet. Right. Yeah. No, and I, I have a pair of those Vibram shoes from New Balance, um, made a decent pair and I use those for lifting. But like you said, as long as I'm, I'm hiking and it's, uh, it's not some, I wouldn't run in shoes like that. But like you said, you're, you're hiking, you're, you're managing positions and you're feeling what's underneath you. And I think as long as it's something there that you can control and, and use what works for you, but absolutely, you brought up a good point. If you, if you have hiking boots on and you can't feel the ground underneath, you, you're not necessarily getting what you want out of it. So it's all in perspective because of course, let's say that you're going to do something that's like, say, a two or a three-day hike, you you uh, might not want to wear shoes like that, right? So you might want to have sh- uh, shoes available to you that can contribute to this type of proprioception we're talking about now for shorter bouts, and especially in the beginning and working your way up. But eventually, you may find that uh, those shoes work pretty great even as you start to go longer. So, you know, build your way up to those type of things. But in general, once we start running and if we're going for really long hikes, then we want to have more cushion in those things. But I think that's a great point about working out in those shoes in the gym too, because you can't necessarily go barefoot, but you can use these shoes that have good tacking to them. They have good grip and you can splay your toes out because that's the way they're designed. So I definitely recommend that as well. And the only thing I would add is I think we're talking a lot about with flexion, plantar flexion, but I think we need to look at doing drills where we're going into uh, dorsiflexion, right? So we're pulling our toes towards our shin. And I have some drills I like to do with that. Um, I have a banded drill I like to do to be able to really build that up. And I do the alphabet. So I draw out the alphabet with some band resistance. Uh, again, I'll throw a link to that so you can see what that looks like. But ultimately, Ryan, I think um, come, coming down to balance. Balance to me is you can't go wrong with uh, incorporating more balance. And what I've gotten into lately a lot more is there's nothing wrong with using hand support or using some additional uh, foot support. So in other words, instead of starting off with a single leg, maybe you're in a split stance and maybe you have a little more foot support. There's nothing wrong with doing that. In fact, I prefer doing that. And usually, actually, even with athletes that are like, oh, no, I got this. And I watch them do a balancing drill and, you know, their hips popping out and they're all over the place and they think they have lumbar stability and they don't. And you can see that they have sort of that uh, tendency to compensate and they don't even realize it. So I like to get them using more of these cues, hand support, foot support, that sort of thing. But then I also like to bring in eyes closed before we advance the drill. Um, I think that that, you know, you have proprioception and that's kind of your body's awareness um, in space and then interoception, which is within your skin, within your space. I like to close eyes and start working on that before we advance the movement. And in fact, a lot of movements where we don't even necessarily, we're not on a single leg or something, but still can be done um, with uh, balance and then with eyes closed before we decide that we are going to go to single leg. So any... um, 
Any closing thoughts on this, Ryan, though? Because um, I know that you were talking originally about how it affected you for volleyball and how you kind of found your way in your process. But um, for people listening out there that may have had issues, maybe it isn't even in, they don't feel the pain in their feet, but it's referred elsewhere. This might be something to unlock for them. But uh, why do you think people would need to start to work on some of these these drills and, and wear these type of shoes? What's the main thing you're seeing with your clients? Well, I think your idea of balance becomes a really important factor. And we can look at it from any level of from a high school athlete to a runner in say their thirties or forties to someone who maybe is in their seventies or eighties that shuffles their feet or is, is kind of hunched over and doesn't move well. And what we don't get is that we've adapted so, so hard to everything that we just naturally do that the moment that you take one of those limbs away, you think you're fine. And I had I had a good example of this with a friend of mine who came in for an evaluation, and she's a strong woman competitor. And a lot of the basic assessment stuff I did with her, she did just fine with. She couldn't stand on one foot for 10 seconds. Just, mm-hmm. just couldn't do it. And I guess in the general scheme of it, what would you need to, mm-hmm. right? The most unilateral thing they do is a heavy carry, and you basically can move four inches and in a shuffle step to get to where you need. You don't need it. But in the general scheme of, well, how stable am I in a squat? I need to know whether or not both sides of my pelvis are stable. And this is such a simple training tool to add in to any program. I mean, bicep curls, I can take myself from two legs to one leg, or like you're talking about a foot support, which uh, I refer to as the kickstand, right? So, and the, one of the biggest atrocities and everyone in the strength world, if, you know, oh, single leg Romanian deadlifts, right? We've got to do single leg deadlifts. Okay, cool. Do it without any weight and tip over. And like you're saying, no spinal structure, they're either rounded over or they're super extended and their whole, the hip that's unsupported is rolling way up into the sky and they're fobbling all over. And you're like, yeah, this is a good idea. I'm going to hand you 40 pound dumbbells and see how this goes. Right. Yes, that could be progressed. But the goal is, is what can I do to load this one leg with as much as I possibly can? And you could either give them some sort of a dowel rod to hold on to, or you just put the toes down right behind that other foot and allow yourself a stable point where you still can train that unilateral musculature and force yourself to find stability. And that progresses. And you're going to progress a hell of a lot faster by giving yourself a crutch, so to speak, then you are just, okay, I'll just find it. Because the likelihood is once you're just, you spend three months standing on one leg, wobbling all over the place, you're just going to get stronger at standing on one leg and wobbling all over the place. And so I think that that's a really good tool. And I think that it matters for an older population where you look and you go, I have a client, she is just the coolest lady. And she comes in and she's at like hyper speed, right? And she's kind of had this like this like left to right wobble and she's rolling through. And I go, let's just slow down and let's see if you can take a step and let your other leg go behind you. And she's half on the ground. 
And they don't realize that because it's just, it's A to B and that's how their body is conditioned. But at some point that will become debilitating and they will make the fall because they tripped and couldn't catch themselves. And that idea of stability and that idea of foot control and that idea of having some sort of intrinsic ability to catch yourself and hold yourself in a less than ideal position is important. So it doesn't have to be your whole program. It might be one exercise a day, but do something where you're on one leg. Wash your dishes and pick one leg up and do your dishes with one leg and then switch it. And it's such a simple tool to add in. And there is so much intrinsic action that happens from the foot to the ankle, to the knee, to the hip, to the abs, that I don't see how that's ever going to be a bad thing. Yeah, no, we have a saying we say a lot here is if you can't grip it, don't rip it. And a lot of people, they understand that means when they grip the bar, if they slip their grip, um, that that's too much weight. But I'm also talking about feet, your feet are your grip too. So if, if we have difficulty finding our grip with our foot, I'm not going to advance until, until we have that. Um, because the way I'm going to sum up what you're saying, but I like it a lot is I'm looking at shelf life with these athletes, but also we're looking at as you get older, you step off the curb wrong and having maybe an icy day where all of a sudden you, you had some uh, snow come the night before. Now you've got to quickly get to your car and you and you end up sliding a little bit. Are you going to have that sense of um, uh, awareness and are you going to be able to recover that before you're on your back? So, you know, these things I think can lead to much worse injuries outside of strength training, outside of running, outside of, you know, just in our daily lives. And as we get older, I think it's more and more imperative that we we have a strong grip because they uh, they say that if you have a strong grip, that increases your, your life capacity or lifespan, right? Um, but I think people always think about just you know, their, their hand grip. But I, I think we got to think beyond that and look at the foot grip as well. So Ryan, I thank you so much for coming in today. As always, you're awesome. Um, where can people find you, my friend? I am located at a wonderful establishment called Performance EDU right around the corner from the Pendola project itself. You can check out our website, performancedu.com. Yeah, guys, and uh, some of you contact me about training, and of course, I do offer online training now, but R Ryan is the guy, if someone's local here, I refer to, because he's uh, he's the expert, and even if it goes to one of his trainers, I know that uh, they are, as he mentioned before in the show, they meet every week, they talk about what they can do to better serve their clients, their real team over there. Uh, they're, they're the real deal. So um, I strongly encourage you guys to, to check them out. And if you're local, certainly give Ryan a ring. Okay, guys, thanks so much. And we will talk to you next time. Bye-bye.